America Dissected is brought to you by the Beaumont Foundation. Calling all rising leaders in public health. Nominations for the Beaumont Foundation's 40 Under 40 in Public Health are due May 17th. 40 Under 40 honorees are service-oriented, equity-focused leaders who bring passion and an entrepreneurial spirit to their work. In addition to national-level recognition, honorees get access to a two-year professional development program, networking with peers and luminaries, and virtual and in-person learning opportunities every quarter. To learn more and to nominate yourself or someone else, visit DeBeaumont.org. DeSantis appointed Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo altered vaccine study data to disinform the public. New reporting shows that the National Academies, a key advisor on national policy, took nearly $20 million from the Sackler family who helped ignite the opioid epidemic. A new study finds that bilingualism may help prevent dementia. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Today, we're talking about polling public health. But to give you some context about why polling can be such a critical tool, I want to step back and reflect on my past life. I ran for governor of Michigan in 2018. I didn't win, which is why, in the tried and true tradition of losing political candidates, I get to host this lovely podcast with you. But running for office taught me a lot about public communication. There's this thing that happens when you run for office. You spend almost all day fundraising just to get to the end of the day, to the part that you thought you were going to do, which is go out and campaign. That was my favorite part. An ice cream parlor in Ishpeming, or a VFW hall in Flint, or a library in Grand Rapids. I've spoken at all of them. I loved getting out into the community and meeting folks, hearing about their challenges, and talking through what the government could do to solve them. All that campaigning, you think you're out there convincing voters, making your case about why you'd be the best candidate for the job. The problem, though, is that you really only see two kinds of people. People who already like you enough to spend their evening listening to you speak, or people who hate you and want to shut you down. The people you really need to convince, though, they're the folks in the middle. They're the folks who are too busy to come to your event. They're trying to work an extra shift or shuttle the kids to and from school or practice. They're the people for whom politics is just background noise. If you're an empathic communicator, you're always trying to adjust to the feedback you hear. You try to use what the last person told you to make your point a bit better. But the problem is that you're never really getting an objective viewpoint from the folks who you speak to. The people who already like you, after all, will tell you you're doing great. The people who hate you, they just hate you. You're never getting the feedback you need from the folks whose voices you don't hear because, well, you don't hear them. And that's where polling comes in. Polling is about trying to get an objective viewpoint from the folks you don't spend all day talking to. It's about trying to reach out and understand those folks who you absolutely need to support you, but won't ever come out to that VFW hall to tell you what they want you to fix. And I'll admit it, polling's gotten a bad rap over the past few years, but that's because we're using it all wrong. We're using it to predict the outcomes of an election. That kind of predictive polling, it's by definition inaccurate. The other problem is how politicians use it. Those more interested in holding power than doing anything important with it will use it to tell them what to say rather than how to say it. Frankly, folks who don't know what they believe on issues of vital importance to the country probably shouldn't run for office in the first place. But that's another story for another day. You're probably already starting to appreciate the parallels between the politician's dilemma and public health's. As a public health official, I spend a lot of my day surrounded by other people who live and breathe public health, people who already agree with what I have to say and understand the shorthand we too often speak in to say it. But when we're surrounded by these folks, we forget that everyone else, most of the people we're trying to communicate with, don't speak public health ease, nor care to. Then, of course, there are the people who hate us, and too often we try to soften our message to accommodate them, even though they'll probably continue to hate us for being, quote, unelected bureaucrats, 
albeit unelected bureaucrats who spent our lives trying to save lives. Anyway, so how do we fix it? Well, polling. And that's exactly what the De Beaumont Foundation, one of our sponsors here at AD, are doing. They've been polling public health since the pandemic, giving us critical feedback, not about what to say, but about how to say it. They've also been reaching out to understand the general mindset into which we are communicating. What do people really think about vaccines, long COVID, or whether or not COVID is over? Most recently, they've polled doctors to understand how misinformation is shaping their practice. How often are they confronted with misinformation by their patients? How does it change their practice? I wanted to talk a bit more about the idea of polling public health and dig into the latest poll. So I invited De Beaumont Foundation President and CEO Brian Castrucci back on the show. Here's our conversation. Okay, can you introduce yourself for the tape? I'm Brian Castrucci. I'm the President and CEO of the De Beaumont Foundation. Brian, you're basically like the, the, the resident consultant whenever we, we talk about public health and the public interest. Um, it's our second time having you on. The last time we had you on, it was in November, just after the 2022 midterms. And we talked a lot about the politicization of public health in the lead up to the election, the way that politicians, uh, for good or for evil, um, were, were flogging public health uh, to try and win votes. And we're, in theory, in an off year, in theory. So I want to ask you, just as you sort of think about uh, this moment in public health as the dust is settled, do you feel like the attention, the focus, the vice grip uh, has become any less intense on public health? Or do you feel like we're just like politics now in, in sort of perpetual campaign mode? I think we're indelibly linked to covid And that's part of the challenge, is when you talk public health, you think mask mandate, you think closing schools, you think closing businesses, and people have different thoughts on that now. And so as long as that's how we're going to be depicted, it's going to stay a political vice grip on the future of public health. We are weaker now than we were at the start of this pandemic. And there's already some bat boogieing down with some pig cooking up the next virus that we're going to have to deal with. And we are solely, wholly, absolutely underprepared for that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think you're, you're really touching on is the fact that we have in the past, as a point of pride, talked about how we operate in the background, behind the scenes, keeping you safe. And we had our moment in the limelight on the stage and it didn't go very well. And I think for a lot of people in public health, they're like, I just want to go back behind the scenes. But I don't think we fully appreciate what this moment has meant for diminishing us and how much we need to rearticulate who we are. And I worry about that instinct that says, let's just go backstage again because it was safe over there. Do you feel like public health uh, and the public health leaders that you talk to have recognized that um, that going back backstage is, 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 is sort of to the detriment of what we're doing? Or do you feel like there's just sort of an overwhelming need to just get off stage? I think people understand they have to communicate better, but they just don't know how. I mean, for me, Abdul, this is like public health Vietnam. I mean, these, these public health people were doing their job. They were doing the things that they were told to do. They were trying to save American lives and now returning after this pandemic or as this pandemic winds down, May 11th, pandemic over day, as identified by the administration. Now we have this very complex relationship post-COVID with many sectors, both politically and socially. 
And we're going to have to rebuild that. And thinking that we can do this from behind the scenes is no longer going to be okay. It wasn't okay before, and it's really bad now. You don't shut down your Facebook Lives and your Instagram Lives. You double down on them. Because what we didn't have was, was trust. You know, to shut down a school, to close businesses, that takes an amazing amount of trust that we maybe didn't have. We were doing things that we didn't have the credibility to do. And we have to reckon with that and make sure that that's never the case again. It's already going to be 10 times harder to enact a mask mandate going forward than it was during COVID. And we're going to have to be trustworthy agents for all sectors of the public for us to be able to use every tool that we have to prevent worse scenarios coming with future pandemics. So I'm hearing you talking about we recognize that we need to communicate with the public. We recognize that that's been a deficit of ours through the pandemic. What should we be talking about? We need to talk about basic public health, health literacy. And our challenge right now is we now have this, in, this whole group of people mobilized to spread disinformation and with real consequences. We recently did a poll that found that nearly three quarters of physicians said that misinformation has made it harder to treat patients for COVID-19. And that same percentage said it had negatively impacted patient outcomes. This is no longer a debate at three in the morning in the bar. This is people weaponizing information and physicians spreading disinformation. And so the hard part right now going forward is it's not that people are anti-science. It's that they have found scientists who agree with them. I mean, I, I don't think we ever gave Kellyanne Conway enough credit. She, in, in 2016, she rebranded lies. It was amazing. Like before that, alternative facts were lies. That's what alternative facts are, right? They're lies. And my son was saying something to me and I said, I don't think that's true. And he said, dad, it's an alternative fact. And I was like, don't you do that. That's a lie. And in this house, it's still a lie. But now we have to deal with this idea that everything is an opinion. And that makes it really hard to just even advance evidence-based practice. And I think that's going to be the legacy of COVID for a long time. You know, you're making a really important point, right? But I think the linchpin in this is attention. So we, we, we had our, our moment in the limelight, largely because people cared what we had to say. And they cared what we had to say either because they found what we had to say credible and wanted to follow our advice, or they cared what we had to say because they saw it as some sort of uh, charge against their civil liberties. That, that's, you know, the, the MAGA Republican talking point about public health is it's uh, what do they call it? medical authoritarianism, right? And, but people cared what we had to say. And the hard part now is as COVID fades in public attention, even if the pandemic and the disease are still with us, as it fades in public attention, people don't really care what we have to say anymore, which means that we are now speaking into a space where we're implicitly competing for other people's attention. And the hard part is that we're not very good at competing for attention. We're not very interesting. We're not very compelling. We don't make good content, right? Um, and and that means that we have to be a lot smarter about how we engage. Now, the thing about this moment in public communication, the nature of the internet, is that facts as a matter of course are boring. And so what's become interesting is controversy, right? When you have facts and alternative facts, now you get takes, 
right? And takes are interesting and people want to listen to takes. And the problem is that that confused a lot of how we spoke in the sense that people took our actual facts, logic, and, and science as just a take. And so I, I want to ask you, like, in, in, this, in this world where facts have been rebranded as just simply different opinions or, or that there can be alternative facts, how do we engage interestingly in a, a way that actually competes for people's attention and gets them to want to listen to what we have to say in a cacophony of conversation that really is just about controversy and takes? I think we know we can do it. I mean, my, my kids watch on YouTube other people watching other people play video games. <laughs> and so if, if that person can figure out how to make that content creative, then we should be able to figure out how to make public health creative. But we need to really think through, it's not just our science. We can't just lead with our facts. We need to be creative and interesting and really make it about you know, what, how it impacts you. Uh, one of our staff said, you know, if you think about if there are fewer police, my house is less safe. If there are fewer teachers, my kids don't get educated. If there are fewer public health practitioners, dot, dot, dot. You know, what, what, is, our, what is our thing? And, and I put that out on Twitter. And you had folks saying, well, that then if there are no public health practitioners, then my neighbor will starve to death from malnutrition. And I thought, well, my neighbors won't. They just won't. I, I live in a community that's constructed to, to exist without the health department. And so that kind of, you know, if this, then that, we have to really work on that with public health so that people understand if there is no public health, then this will happen. And it can't be just simply communitarian values of the greater good. It has to be some individual, this is what it will mean to me. It might mean my employees aren't as healthy or, you know, our kids at school aren't going to graduate on time or something has to be there. But we've not done a real good job at marketing public health. And we need to do that. But also, I mean, you know, Abdul, you know this, like you have young kids now, and I'm sure they have the little Melissa and Doug doctor's dress-up kit. So we start we start acculturating people around medicine from the minute they're born, right? Doc McStuffins on Disney, um, you know, nurses and and doctors. You play dress up for those roles. No one plays, you know, epidemiologist as a kid. Mm. You don't even know what that is. You don't even understand that there is a you know, direct correlation between your community health and your individual health. When do you get that? In college, maybe. I mean, I asked my kids, how do you think tobacco ads influence how you think about smoking? And in my community, they gave me the right answer. Dad, what's a tobacco ad? Mm -hmm. Right, because my community is constructed not to have tobacco ads. So they never influence my kids. But that's not true for everybody. And we have to think about how we can pass the right policies so that everybody can achieve their optimal health. But while we're trying to figure out for what, decades, how to communicate public health, medical, what is it? Medical individualism is, is already well-defined now. Yeah. I mean, the thing about, and the thing that the thing we're circling on is we've got to be better storytellers, but the story for public health is hard to tell. The story for medicine is easy. I felt sick. I saw a doctor. Doctor treated me. I felt good. Therefore, doctor is good, honorable, noble, and someone I need in my life versus, um, 
I was feeling fine and I kept on feeling fine. I don't know why I kept on feeling fine, but I think it was somebody working in the background there making me feel fine, which is a much harder story to tell. And we've got to be just that much better at telling it. And one of the reasons that I, I wanted to start with the conversation about, about narrative is because we kind of have to understand how we're perceived as we move forward. Um, you know, everybody uh, who listens to the pod knows that I, I ran for office once. And I think if there's a cardinal skill in politics, it's knowing how you're perceived. And I think we would do well to do that. And you all have taken up the effort to do exactly that. You've been polling on public health. I want to ask you, you know, this isn't a normal thing to poll on, but what led to the idea to sponsor and put polls out in the field to understand um, baseline perspectives on things? What was that one spark moment where you're like, no, we should do this? Well, I think, you know, as a former politician, y'all poll on everything. Like that's how decisions are made. You have to know how people perceive you. And we didn't have those data. And, you know, what the polling has, showed, has shown me is that it is really a, a small group of people with giant megaphones who are really trying to undermine public health. Most people appreciate what public health are doing, even if they can't necessarily define what it is. But we need active, consistent polling. Health Affairs just published an article on trust, you know, polling around trust in, in the public health infrastructure. I think it's important to know these things, track them, and see how we're doing. Because these are the real issues that we have to attend to. Yes, we have to attend to our science, and we need to attend to our programs. But just how public health is perceived is critically important. And, you know, you are such a great storyteller when you talk about you know, people you met during your campaign. We have to understand that public health is a science job, but it is a political job now. Maybe not a partisan job, hopefully not a partisan job, but definitely a political job. And if I see health commissioners in health departments, they're in the wrong place. They need to be at the Rotary Club. They need to be at the school opening. They need to be everywhere meeting people so that when, even if you think, you know, I don't know what public health is, but I know this person. And they care about me and my health. And that's important. I think that's a huge step forward. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, as, as someone who's commissioned polling in the past, one of the things that polling ought to allow you to do is to see past the people who want to be seen by you. What do I mean by that? Is that when you're on the community, you usually see people who like you or you see people who hate you, but you don't see anyone in the middle. And it's those folks in the middle who matter most to understand where, you know, especially in a campaign, where you're headed. But if you think about what we do in public health, our constituency aren't necessarily the people who are privileged enough to understand what public health is doing and support it, or not privileged enough not to live outside the bounds of what we do. Now, those are our constituency as well. But if we want to continue to thrive, we want to continue to be able to support those folks who need us most, we really have to win over those folks who sit in the ether between those two groups. And understanding what they're thinking, what value they see us as adding or not, what dangers they see around the corner, I think getting their perspective on it is critical such that we can continue to provide services that we fundamentally need to provide. And the hard part about it is that it does require people to agree and believe that there ought to be an institution that services people who are not like them. I mean, that's the hard part about public health. The people who benefit the most from us uh, tend to be folks um, who 
uh, are not in positions of power to really influence um, the directions and the choices that society uh, is headed into. I want to ask you about your, your most recent poll because it's an interesting one. And Brian, I, I know you pretty well, and I know that um, you, you know you, you came up in this conversation. You're not a fan of doctors, right? And it's not that you're not a fan of doctors. Doctors saved your life. They've, they've saved mine. It's that you're not a fan of the, the implicit narrative built around doctors and health, right? And, um, and, and so it was interesting to me, it was curious to me that you polled both doctors and polled people about doctors. So walk me through um, the reasoning behind that. My concern with, with physicians in public health is that far too many jurisdictions require an MD to be a health commissioner. And I don't, I, I don't think MDs are bad health commissioners, but I think there are a lot of people who could be health commissioners who don't have that training. And if we could open it up, I think we'd be better off as a, as a public health you know, system. And so with this, we really, you know, having worked with physicians throughout COVID and worked with them around messaging and hearing the real impact of misinformation at the bedside, I thought it was really important to hear that this isn't just something someone wrote on Twitter. This isn't like debating whether the Patriots should trade Mac Jones. That's, that's just a, a mindless debate that you have with your friends, especially if you're a Patriots fan like I am. This has real impact. This is people weaponizing ivermectin, making huge money. What did you see that article in Medscape about the physician in Texas who wrote 800,000 hydroxychloroquine prescriptions wow. in a year? That's, that's a lot of prescriptions. So this is, this is something we needed to understand, that there's real damage being done to the American public. And I, and I think it also expands beyond COVID. I am a type 2 diabetic, and it's always interesting when I look at my own Facebook feed how many physicians are peddling cures for diabetes. I didn't think there was a cure for diabetes. Uh, I thought we had to medically manage it. So, But I'm going to go next week to someone who's going to tell me I can get off all my medication because they're going to balance my hormones or give me a, a multivitamin. And I'm smart enough to know that difference, but this is harming the American public. And that's what we really wanted to see with the poll. Um, physicians were more concerned about losing trust then the American public had said, we, we don't trust our physicians anymore. So, you know, the, the American public still trusts physicians. It is a, an amazing profession and that you have amazing trust from people. And so it's, it is so important for medical boards to be the real keepers of that trust and act against these physicians who are doing things in the interest of monetary enhancement instead of medical expertise. We'll be back with more after this break. This podcast is supported by Marguerite Casey Foundation. How can we radically improve our democracy, economy, and society? Marguerite Casey Foundation provides unrestricted support to movement leaders in academia whose research encourages us to imagine how we might answer these questions. The Freedom Scholar Awards are a commitment to scholarship that fuels freedom movements led by Black and Indigenous people, migrants and queer folks, poor folks, and people of color. Learn more about the Freedom Scholars and their powerful work at caseygrants.org. America Dissected is brought to you by Article. Y'all, it was 65 degrees today. And you know what? I know it's literally May, but hey, I'll take it. Because you know what, Michigan? Your summer is long and coming, but wow, is it lovely. Now that summer is swinging on by, I'm thinking a lot about how I want to upgrade my outdoor space. 
After all, the best thing about summer is getting to do all your favorite indoor things outside. Sharing meals, watching movies, falling asleep on the sofa accidentally. Everything's better al fresco. Article's curated catalog of outdoor furniture is here to help. They've got everything you need to really make things your own, from outdoor sofas to dining sets to decor. Article's flexible range of styles means you can do more with the space you've got. The Great Outdoors is the ultimate open concept area. There's so much potential here, so why not make your outdoor space really work for you? This summer, create the outdoor space you've always dreamed of with Article. Because Article's just got furniture shopping on lock. Whether it's an incredible online experience, getting your stuff in like two weeks, paying fair prices, and not to mention all of the incredible design aesthetics, including Scandi and Boho. Article believes in delightful design for every home, and thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern coastal industrial Scandian boho designs make furniture shopping simple. Article's team of designers are all about finding the perfect balance between style, quality, and price. They're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and looks good doing it. Article offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. Plus, they won't leave you waiting around. You pick the delivery time, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Article's knowledgeable customer care team is there when you need them to make sure your experience is smooth and stress-free. Article's offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash AD, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's A-R-T-I-C-L-E dot com slash AD for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. And we're back with more of my conversation with Brian Castrucci. So walk me through some of the key findings here. I know you asked a question about the impact of mis- and disinformation at the bedside. What did you find? Yeah, we had nearly three quarters of physicians saying that COVID misinformation has made it harder to treat patients and that it has negatively impacted patient outcomes. We had 44% of physicians that said more than half of the COVID information that they see, read, or hear from patients is misinformation. So those who are spreading misinformation are doing a great job. They're doing a much better job than we are. Now, I don't like their outcomes, but they're achieving their outcomes. They are seeding doubt, right? And and what we know is that physicians agree that COVID vaccines are safe. 92% of physicians in our poll said the vaccines are safe. 91% said they're effective. So that, I had heard one of the the big disinformation doctors saying, we know the vaccine is harming people. We know it's causing myocarditis and physicians are coming around to this. No, that's not true. That's a lie. And I have the data to call it out. And that's what's important right now is we've got to call out these fabrications with real data, because that's the hard part on our side, Abdul, is we're limited by like facts and science and truth. So I can't just make stuff up. And honestly, and this is one you know to really think about, if you ask you or I, can you guarantee me that in 10 years, the vaccine won't turn you into a zombie? Our answer really has to be, I can't guarantee you that. The data would suggest that, we'll always have ongoing trials, it is unlikely. But then the folks on the other side, come on, there are chips in the vaccine that will allow us to track you, that, you know, this is a way that we're going to do mass mind control. They can make up anything. And it starts to sound really compelling. Well, because it's, it's so much more interesting content, right? Like the, 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 the imagination, right? Like when, when you talk about chips or mind control or zombies, 
That's like interesting stuff. I want to listen to that. And so the problem is I, I'm probably going to. And if it's like you boring womp womp uh, teacher from uh, the Peanuts and this person talking about zombies and chips, I'm going to listen to that other one. And the thing about it is that when you're unbounded by facts, right? Unfortunately, facts tend not to be all that interesting because what has happened is likely what's going to happen. And so when you become unbounded by facts, you can make a lot more fantastically interesting content. Um, that's what fiction is, right? And fiction is interesting. There's a reason we don't just all read nonfiction. There's a reason that we read fiction is because it, you know, it, it, it is strange. It's, it's fantastical. Our imaginations enjoy listening to it. And the thing that, that kills me is when, and you, know, and, and you talk about this in your poll, is that the purveyors of fiction are credible. So can you talk to us about what you found about the harms of misinformers and white coats, we'll call them, doctors of disinformation? Yeah, I think we're seeing it with people believing that ivermectin and hydrochloroquine work. We're seeing it just in that whole idea that people are now at the bedside with people who are leading with misinformation. So you have to undo that misinformation. You have to deprogram to start. And, and I think, you know, you had, I think, Gray's Anatomy and several other uh, television programs kind of taking that on early in the pandemic. But this has now kind of waned a bit. I mean, it's, it was interesting. My, you know, my son, my 13-year-old, um, he came to me and said, you know, after DeMar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills player uh, who had Camusio Cordis, you know, so many people were talking about that as a vaccine injury. And he said, Dad, did you know that no one's actually seen a clear picture of DeMar Hamlin since he had that injury? And I was like, what? no, they've seen him. And he's like, no, no, it's a body double. And I was like, that's insane. Um, and I, you know, I had a heart attack last year and I said to him, I said, well, you know, Evan, now that you figured this out, your dad passed away from a heart attack. I'm a clone. And he's like, fine, I get your point. I'm like, thank God you get my point. But I think you're right. I mean, this is why documentaries don't do as well as the, at the box office as Marvel movies. Right. And so it's, it's always that little bit of truth. Right. There's always one little vein of truth there, like people using the VAERS system to kind of say, look at all these deaths. Um, but it's. It is something that we need to get really good at and really fast about how we work with our communities to get the right information out there. And honestly, how we stop people just purveying lies. And they're not lies for the sake of lies. They're lies for the sake of monetary gain. Yeah. And that's, that's, the, that's the thing about it is that there's always a hook on the other end of the disinformation. And particularly when it's physicians who who are providing it. One of the questions you asked about is support for medical boards governing uh, disinformers in the ranks. What did you find on that front? We found that there was extraordinary support for progressive discipline up through having someone's license revoked for continued spreading of misinformation. And so it was, you know, I think we had four levels of discipline and had a good 80, 90% of, you know, the physician saying we should be disciplined if people are spreading misinformation. And, and you know, then always the, the retort is, well, then I want to become the, the minister of misinformation. I've always wanted to be the minister of magic, but never minister of misinformation. And it's just, it's about the scientific process. I, you know, someone was talking about science. It, science isn't a thing. It's a process. And we agree on that process. We agree to the rules. And so then the outcome is what we value. But now we can't even agree on those rules anymore. Right? You have, 
the, the sitting health commissioner in the state of Florida producing studies and, and writing policy based on those studies when those studies follow none of the guidelines of what is science. Wasn't peer-reviewed or no authors. They were ignoring their own limitations. And this is happening more and more. This is the problem with preprints that come out and then aren't ever really validated. And so we are you know, systemically pumping out more and more disinformation. And it's really hard for people to even understand what that disinformation is. I, I was putting out my own medication today and noticed that my pills switched color, switched shape. And I was like, okay, let me think about this. And I went and Googled it and found, oh, there was a change in how they're manufacturing the medication. And I just thought, you know, if I was a person who didn't have any health background, would I still take those meds? Would I be concerned? Right? I mean, there's so much information right now. And, and we have to realize that information overload isn't just bad information. It's all the information that you have to sort through. So we need consistent messaging that everyone is sharing in public health. That's when we'll start to break through this. And, and we also need the help of the federal government to not create you know, situations where platforms are allowed to just spread whatever they want, whenever they want, right? That used to be something we didn't do, and now it's freewheeling. And in your poll, uh, I know you thought through where people versus doctors got their information, and, and how did that differ? The general public, where are they going for their information? Where are doctors going for their information? Well, I mean, doctors are still using, you know, legitimate places, but the internet is a source of information for everybody. And I think the skill gap comes in being able to differentiate what is a legitimate source versus what is a non-legitimate source. I mean, have you looked at some websites that really look totally legitimate? I mean, how close have you gotten to kind of realizing that that email you got maybe you know, wasn't spam and you almost acted on it? Uh, I got an uh, email recently from a journal and the link that I clicked then started the whole, you know, your computer is under assault and it looked totally legitimate. It was like, call this 1-800 number at Microsoft and it looked you legitimate. You got spammed by a journal? Yeah, I got spammed <laughs> by a journal. I was like, someone should call them and say something may be going wrong with this link they're sending out. But this, this is what we have to really think about is that the internet for its speed you know, I mean, a journal article is always like a year away, right? And that's the, the time of science. And when we're in something like a pandemic, we want speed. But speed comes at a cost. And how we differentiate between truth and, and fiction on internet websites that look totally legitimate. They look like a journal, they act like a journal, um, but they really aren't a journal. Or the studies aren't, you know, correct. And there's always a methodological flaw that, the average person will never be able to discern. And even really good epidemiologists can't always discern those methodological flaws. If even the author chooses to, to say, you know, to share them, you know, in a, in a legitimate way. We have like science on the table. And what's scary is, is we already don't trust the media. So we've effectively, you know, eroded media and trust in media. We've effectively eroded trust in government. We've had an ongoing conversation as to whether the 2020 election was stolen. That sounds like a bad movie plot, not something I'd hear on the nightly news. And now, if we can erode science, then we'll fall for anything. That's the third pillar. That's the hat trick. To your point, in your polling, you find 
that it's not just COVID misinformation. It's like COVID opened Pandora's box for a lot more medical disinformation. It's not that it wasn't there to begin with. Don't get me wrong. It's been there all along. But that the grifters have realized that it's an effective grift with COVID and that it's opened the door to misinformation across the board in a much more profound way. Can you talk a little bit about what you found and, and how you interpret it? Yeah, this was this was really important to me. I, I have struggled with um, obesity my whole life and am a diabetic now. And so uh, I'm often the target audience for weight loss cures or for diabetes cures. And I just have always wondered, you know, what what do we think about all of this misinformation? And we found that more than two-thirds of physicians said information and misinformation is a problem for weight loss, dietary supplements, mental health, and, and other vaccines. I mean, let's let's be honest with each other. There is a whole misinformation movement with dietary supplements. I mean, I what, what supplements do you take? What don't you take? What's it going to do? I mean, how many things do we see in our Instagram feeds of, if you take this, you're going to get rid of this fat. It's going to remove fat from your belly faster than anything else. And you buy these things, but those are almost legitimized because as long as they say this, these are not FDA-approved claims, it's okay. Here's the bottom line. There has always been snake oil salesmen in our culture, right? It's, they've, they've always been there in little carts going town to town. The difference is today, with one click, they reach millions of people. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole different game. And there are people profiting off of it, whether it's people who are selling cures for cancer or mental health cures or, you know, sign up for my newsletter for this much money. And these people have no training in mental health, but a lot wear that white coat. And that white coat has a huge impact in our culture, right? We're taught to respect it from you know, day one. And there's a huge responsibility there. And that's, what, that's what's on the line right now, is our legitimacy of medicine and science. And it's being warped. And it's being warped by legitimate people. The health commissioner of Florida is a Harvard-trained physician. Why would a Harvard-trained physician not be telling us scientific fact? That's a, that's a question we have to wrestle with. As we think about what we're learning and where we're headed, and what it teaches us about the challenge of doing legitimate, evidence-driven, science-based public health in the future. What worries you most about the way that this mis- and disinformation reverberates back? Is it the charlatans with the right markers of credibility? Is it that we give up trying to message into the ether? Or is it that the institutional requirements for maintaining a public health infrastructure because of lack of trust fall away? Or is it something different? I worry that those who are seeking to spread misinformation are far better funded and far better organized than those trying to undo that misinformation. And that ultimately, we are headed into a post-fact era an era where it would be near impossible to get people to pass some of the smoking ordinances that we were able to in the past because there would be much more organized resistance to whether smoking caused lung cancer, whether smoking was bad for you. I mean, thank God we had the smoking gun of the, the documents from the industry. No industry will ever do that again. They've learned from tobacco, right? Think about if HIV emerged today 
right? We know that there's always been that small group who said HIV does not cause AIDS, right? They're there. But today they would find a whole different platform. And that could catch fire in an entirely different way. And that's what worries me, just the ability to continue the evolution of our nation when we are gambling with our safety, our security, and our economic prosperity. We'll be back with more after this break. America Dissected is brought to you by Miracle Made. Whether your goals are to get healthy, be a better parent, or get more done at work, there is one thing that'll help, and that's better sleep. With Miracle Made Sheets, you can tap into the power of self-cooling temperature regulation, which has been shown to improve deep sleep quality by over 20%. Look, for me, sleep is that cornerstone of my life. There's not one thing I do for longer. And you know what? I kind of want to do it well because, well, it means everything else. That gets better too. Miracle Made Sheets have self-cooling properties for better quality sleep. Using silver-infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle Made Sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long. So you get better sleep every night. And that silver, by the way, it prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. So stop sleeping on bacteria. Clean sheets mean less bacteria to clog your pores and fewer breakouts and other skin problems. Go to trymiracle.com ad. That's T-R-Y-M-I-R-A-C-L-E dot com slash A-D to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And with Mother's and Father's Day right around the corner, this is the perfect way to give someone you love the gift of better and more luxurious sleep. Save over 40% and be sure to use our promo code A-D at checkout to save even more and get three free towels. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash AD and use the code AD to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash AD to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. And we're back with more of my conversation with Brian Castrucci. You know, the, this was not a conversation about AI, but I've been thinking quite a bit about it as I play around with ChatGPT and some of these new language models. These models are trained on content. They're not necessarily pruned for what content is truth versus falsehood. And so folks get real confused about why they get things wrong. And they get things wrong because the internet gets things wrong. And that's the training data for these models. And I worry that there's this recursive effect where garbage in, garbage out. We know this from you know, anyone who's ever done statistical modeling knows garbage in, garbage out. But you know, AI modeling makes garbage in, garbage out so much more compelling because the models, they don't require interpretation. They, they tell you. They talk to you. And I worry that in this era of, of mis- and disinformation where our ability to verify is so limited, when you start then creating more and more AI-based content that other AI feeds off of, all you do is you're sort of feeding all this misinformation into the machines that seem to be the ones that are going to be dictating the future. And so it just becomes that much more of uh, a scary scenario where the ability to differentiate fact from fiction when the same machine is telling you, you know, the quote answers, um, 
that that gets a lot harder, uh, a lot more quickly. I want to end on a positive note if, if there is one here. And that to me is that even though you hear a lot more about the mis and disinformers, you know, nine out of 10 doctors agree that that used to be, you know, a, a punchline for a commercial. Um, and the median sort of sees this for what it is. So what does it mean for us to give those folks the microphone, right? What does it mean for us uh, to elevate those voices and those perspectives? And I think you're doing a lot of that by by doing this polling. Um, but how do we design around, you know, that problem, the sort of, I hate to use this word, but the quote, silent majority problem? I think it is the silent majority problem. I mean, I, I, I've had kids in school for the better part of, you know, eight years. Um, and I like my school system. And so I have never been to a PTA meeting. I've never been to a school board meeting because I think everything's going great. You know, my kids are happy. I think they get a good education. But there are people, a small minority of people who are at every school board meeting telling the school board everything they've done wrong. We have to get engaged with the same kind of fervor for the good. You know, saying these things are going well. This is what we believe. This is okay, right? And, and as long as we're allowing specific politicians or specific media people to set a national narrative. And we just kind of, you know, I think we were all just waiting for it to go away. And so we weren't paying attention. We can't do that anymore, right? The stakes are too high. At this point, we have to engage like we've never engaged before. And I love when I see more doctors on Twitter saying, no, wait, that's not true. No, wait, that's not true. Now they get attacked and there's a high price that many of us are paying in this kind of ongoing debate. But it, it needs to be conversations that we don't just have on Twitter, but we have with our friends, we have at our, at our churches and synagogues and other places of worship. We have to have a constant conversation in this nation. But I think you brought up a really good point, how AI and the internet is allowing misinformation and disinformation to spread in a way that we never thought possible. This is what our challenge is going forward. It's a generational challenge. And I'm an 80s kid, so I've always been concerned about AI and Skynet and the Terminator. That's what I was raised on as a kid. You so both. none of this kind of fear is new. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger put that in me you know, decades ago. But we have to really be the, the force that fights it and says, hey, listen, even though that person's really loud, there aren't a lot of people who agree with them. Right. And just like I think Nancy Mace in her, you know, in the Twitter files, congressional hearings, you know, was asking this Twitter person, you know, who are you? Are you a physician? Why do you get to silence doctors? Because just because you wear that white coat doesn't mean you're right. Doesn't mean you're ethical. Doesn't mean you're saying the right things. Science is a process. We have to follow it. And if we don't, then who knows what we'll believe. Because if we don't stand for something, we'll fall for anything. And when your health's on the line, that's super dangerous. I think sometimes um, those of us who believe in fact, facts, and uh, truth, truth, <laughs> we hesitate to speak up when we think that what we're saying should be obvious. And the problem right now is that too few people speak for the truth or for what is obvious. And it goes without saying right? We say that all the time. It goes without saying. But actually, in, in today's day and age, you have to say what goes without saying, because there are enough people saying the exact opposite, that they are swaying public opinion because most of us are staying silent on the thing that goes without saying. And we appreciate you always being the one who's willing to say it um, and to surface 
the broader public belief and uh, and to come on the show and, and share some of what you found with us. Our guest today uh, was Brian Castrucci. He's the president and CEO of the De Beaumont Foundation, who is a sponsor of this podcast uh, because they generally want people talking about public health. So, Brian, we really appreciate you coming and joining us today, sharing a bit more about your polling. And hopefully, as you get more results in the future, we'd love to check in on them. Thank you so much, Abdul, and thanks for having me. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Most states don't have Surgeon Generals because, well, most states don't have generals, period. Which is why it's so curious that Ron DeSantis appointed one in the first place. And given that this is Ron DeSantis we're talking about, you know, a guy who literally doesn't step into a bathroom without asking if it can benefit his political career, he appointed one Joseph Ladapo as his. Now you all know a few things get me as hot and bothered as folks who sell out their credentials for a little bit of money, fame, or power. But that's exactly what Joseph Ladapo has chosen to do. At every single turn, he's been a yes man to Ron DeSantis' absurd demagoguery around COVID. At the center of this was an astounding claim he made that COVID vaccines were associated with, quote, an abnormally high risk of cardiac-related deaths in young men based on flimsy analysis by the Florida Department of Public Health. And then he called on young men in this age group to avoid getting the vaccine. This week, the Tampa Bay Times released findings from a public records request that found that Dr. Ladapo himself had edited this into the report. Five previous drafts had all indicated, quote, no increased risk for cardiac mortality following mRNA vaccinations. Only in the sixth, the first with Dr. Ladapo's edits, was this sweeping edit made. How's that for flimsy evidence? Between the six versions of the study, you see the evolution of an effort to twist the results, fuddling with time categories and playing fast and loose with the analysis and interpretation. They also completely eliminated a key sensitivity analysis that cast a lot of doubt on the association between mRNA vaccinations and cardiac events in young men. Exactly that association which Dr. Ladapo decided to frame an entire press release around. What's a sensitivity analysis, you might ask? Well, epidemiologists use them to stress test their findings against possibly spurious results that could result from limited data. And by removing that stress test, Ladapo made the cardiac finding seem a lot more serious than the data actually suggest. It's hard not to see this stunning scientific malpractice as anything other than motivated entirely by Ladapo's need to brown nose his boss, who, by the way, has taken a dark turn against public health, trying to cast himself as the real bearer of the MAGA creed. It's also a reminder of something we touched on in our conversation with Brian. Not all that glitters is gold. We live in a moment where academic bona fides do not good science make. It just takes enough Joseph Ladapos out there willing to sell out their MDs for some power, fame, or money to drive myths and disinformation into the world. After all, who needs a fig leaf when you've got a white coat? And that's why this next story is so concerning. The National Academies of Medicine, the Sciences, and Engineering are some mix between honor society and think tank. They induct leading thinkers as members every year. Being inducted into the National Academy of Medicine, for example, is among the highest honors a medical scientist can receive. Then members of the National Academies publish well-respected reports on key issues in science that everyone from the president to Congress to state and local governments pay a lot of attention to. But it turns out that they're not immune to outside influence either. New reporting from the New York Times found that the National Academies took nearly $20 million from the Sacklers. As you'll remember, they're the family behind Purdue Pharma, the manufacturers of OxyContin, the opioid widely responsible for kicking off the opioid epidemic. Worse, they've authored two major reports on the opioid epidemic. One of them claimed that upwards of 40% of Americans suffer chronic pain. That's a vastly inflated number, considering that the CDC revised those numbers down to between 7 and 21%. 
That report, well, it helped push the FDA to author at least one problematic opioid and was cited to push doctors to prescribe them. It's not clear whether the Sackler donations were directly tied to either report, but let's just say it's shady as hell. It raises a series of important questions. For example, why do the National Academies take outside money to begin with? They were founded by Abraham Lincoln in 1863 as an independent advisory organization for the government, and they get 70% of their funding from the government in the first place. Why sully their reputation with corporate contributions, including from pharma and fossil fuel companies? All of this highlights just how thick the web of corporate influence can be. Finally, a new study on the risk of dementia found that bilingualism may prevent it. This study of 746 people between the ages of 59 and 76, roughly 40% of whom had no memory issues, looked at the risk of these issues for people who spoke two languages every day, either between the ages of 13 and 30 or between 30 and 65. And they found that those who did had higher scores on various memory tests, including the ability to recall three objects or spell words backwards. Even among folks with memory challenges, those who spoke two languages regularly developed symptoms later in life. The study adds to a growing body of work, both looking at the brain benefits of bilingualism and the role of cognitive stress on dementia risk. These findings support a general thrust that shows that bilingual people may develop a certain cognitive fluidity that helps them toggle between various tasks and even manage their emotions better. As for dementia, though we know precious little about what actually drives it, the bulk of our present research shows that, like our bodies, regular exercise is probably good for the brain, too. Notice that the study isn't just about knowing multiple languages, but about speaking multiple languages every day, which is, of course, really hard to do. English was not my first language. I only learned it when I started school. But today, I'd be hard-pressed to talk about much more than my activities of daily living in Arabic. Similarly, though I learned French in school, I certainly don't use it very often. But all of that has me thinking. Maybe I need to start using them more often. If not because it's really cool and enlightening to speak to people in other languages, then maybe because it'll help stave off the risk of cognitive decline as I age. Voulez-vous parler français avec moi? Ou mumkin n'etkallim sawa bil'arabi? That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review. Goes a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Store for some American Dissected merch. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emma Illich Frank. Vasilis Fotopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takao Sazawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul El Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Wayne County, Michigan or its Department of Health, Human, and Veteran Services.